0: We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither heights nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.
1: So years ago, uh, my wife Beth used to um, walk our children to, to Milton Road School, and there was a woman lived on our street just for a couple of years. She was over from Japan, I think, if I remember rightly, and, um, and, Beth, and Beth and she would often end up walking together um, with the kids to school, um, and conversation would turn to... Um, you know, families and what people did, and so on. Uh, and Beth began to explain uh, about my job, and I worked as a, a, a Christian minister. The Christian faith was completely mysterious to this woman; um, never come across it before. Um, and the idea of my job and what I did was even more mysterious to her. Um, and Beth did her best to explain, uh, you know, what it was all about. And, and this woman would say, "Well, what does he do all day?" <laughs> um, and so Beth explained about the Bible uh, and about studying the Bible and teaching the Bible. Um, and then there was this moment where she said, one book, all his life, <laughs> just one book. And I, and I don't know if there was more sort of shock or, or whether she was just deeply appalled at such a sort of a waste of time invested in just a single book. Now I tell you that because um, we've uh, just invested, if you've been around, we've just invested the last two months in just one chapter uh, of this book. Um, Romans chapter 8 has been our focus uh, for the last eight weeks uh, and we come to the end of our time in the chapter uh, this week. Um, Been time well spent? It's been a fantastic chapter. Uh, I've loved spending time uh, in it. Um, so, so let's take a moment uh, as we reach the end of the chapter just to sort of pause and reflect, um, see a little bit of where we've been. Paul, Paul writes this letter. Uh, when we began this, this two months um, at the beginning of chapter 8, I reminded you that Paul begins this letter um, by setting out the shape of the whole gospel of grace. Tells the Christians there in Rome how in Christ... God has provided a righteousness that is by faith. It comes to us, therefore, not by works, not by something that we've done that we earn it. It comes to us by grace as a gift, just just like a a deposit that lands in our bank account uh, as a gift. Um, uh, Paul says that it's crediting righteousness to us. But um, as he describes this gospel, It raises all sorts of questions for people. Because if this great and wonderful gospel speaks of a a victory over sin, a a defeat of death, um, uh, the, the, the overcoming of evil, well, you can imagine Christians saying, well, how come then? How come I still suffer? How come bad things still happen to me? And if anything, more difficult things, persecution has come my way. Those were some of the questions in Rome. Or or maybe, uh, how come uh, I still find sin so prevalent in my life? How come the battle with sin, if anything, seems harder? Now I'm a Christian believer, rather than easier. What's become of these promises of the defeat of evil, of, of the overcoming of sin and death? Everything seems to go on just as it ever did. Is this gospel really all that it's cracked up to be? Well, chapter 8 provides the answer to that sort of question. Uh, And it concludes with this sort of resounding sort of crescendo of assurance that we've just heard. But before we get into it, can I just ask you... Okay, we've been looking at this chapter for two months how have your two months been? How has your summer been? And I don't mean, you know, where would you go on holiday and how was that? Spiritually, how was your summer? Summer can be hard, can't it? At least in my experience, uh, uh, sometimes spiritually, summer can be a particularly tough time. Maybe it's because our expectations are too high. And the summer break disappoints. Maybe it was because the temptations are too great uh, and we succumb. Uh, maybe it's just that our routines get disrupted over the summer months and, uh, and all sorts of things don't work out as we'd hoped they might. I'd be surprised if some of us aren't arriving at the end of the summer with a sense of spiritual disappointment. The books that we thought we were going to read and we haven't. The prayers that we thought we were going to say and we didn't. The, the routines that, that just got put to one side. The prayers we didn't say. The quiet times we didn't have. Or, or perhaps you're just smarting from um, one of those holiday rows. It's funny how we do that, isn't it? We, sort of, we store something up and then we're away with family or friends, and we think, well, now we've got time to talk this through. Only talking it through turns out to to end in a sort of seismic row, Um, and we're still experiencing the aftershocks. Or, Or perhaps you're not so much looking back with disappointment. Maybe as you come to the end of the summer, you're looking forward with dread, the mountain of jobs that you managed to forget for a couple of weeks by the pool. Well, funnily enough, they're still there. Um, And they look even more intimidating. Uh, Or perhaps your your post-summer doldrums are precipitated by the sense of same old, same old. Same difficult family, same difficult flatmates, same difficult marriage, same difficult sin that I find so hard to set aside. And you're just worn out by it so that there's nothing confident or assured about your Christian journey at the minute. Well, what would this chapter say to us if we find ourselves in that kind of place? How would God speak to our doubts and our fears, our disappointments? Uh, Just two headings uh, from uh, the the heart of this chapter. Uh, Here's the first one. God justifies no one... Can condemn. Not all of us may be feeling like this this side of the summer, but but for those of us who are, um, maybe you do hear the word of condemnation. Maybe people close to you have suggested that there's all sorts of things you're doing wrong, or maybe it's your own conscience that is convicting you and condemning you. Well, see how this chapter speaks to that sense of condemnation. If you hear here last week, you remember that uh, we had our very own tug-of-war to illustrate the fact that if, if God were on our side in a tug-of-war, then if he were pulling, as it were, on our side, then who cares who's on the other end of the rope? That's the sense of verse 31, isn't it? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God's pulling with us. What does it matter who's down the other end? Indeed, verse 32... He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also, along with him, not graciously give us all things? Great deceit in the Garden of Eden was the idea that God was a spoil sport, wasn't it? That God would hold back on us. That that he would shortchange us. That that there'd be stuff that was good that he wouldn't let us get. Do you see how this responds to, to that deceit? God has given us the very best. He's given us his very own son. If you do that, how could you ever imagine that he would withhold good things from you? Uh, But there's more. Paul's language here takes us into a a courtroom. And and, and the image is something like as if we're trying to sort of sidle our way out of the dock. You know, we're feeling as if we're being being there as the accused, and we're just trying to sort of sneak out. And it's as if an officer of the court stops us in our tracks. and in his hands are all the evidence that is needed to condemn us. List of our sins, catalogue of our failings, all those broken promises from the summer, those petty rows, those ugly words. And it's as if this great list demands our condemnation. Look at verse 43, 33. Who will bring any charge against them who's, those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? God knows about that list. You know, when this person tries to accuse us and presents all these terrible things that we've done, it's not as though they take God by surprise. As if we'd managed to pull the wool over his eyes and now somebody's going to reveal all this stuff. And God says, gosh, I didn't realize he'd done that. Ooh. God knows already. He sees. And despite that, he justifies us. The judgment that is deserved upon us falls on Christ. And no sin can be paid for twice. That's the sense in verse 34. Christ who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Do you catch those four things about Jesus tucked in very quickly together? First, that, that Christ died on the cross in our place. Second, that he was raised from the dead, demonstrating that the payment was accepted. Third, he's now there at the head of the universe, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And what's he doing there? Fourth, interceding. For us, Christ now at the Father's right hand, at this very moment, pleading our case. In spite of all that we have done, God receives us. It's God who justifies. Yes, we deserve punishment, but that punishment has fallen upon Him. And so God sets us free from condemnation. So no one can condemn, no, no one can produce a list of stuff that can get us into trouble because God has justified us. That's the first thing a Christian can be sure of. And then the second, Christ loves us and nothing can separate us from that love. Pick it up in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Christ. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Read the book of Acts. Uh, You soon see that these were all things that Paul knew in his own experience. All these things happened to him in his ministry and more besides. And there's nothing new about these kind of difficulties coming at believers. That's the point of the reference from Psalm 44. Old Testament believers, believers down history, have known trouble and difficulty. But however real and long-standing and heavy our trouble may be, the fact is that none of that, none of that separates us from the love of Christ. Why? Because, verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Just notice the the language here. Um, It's worth sort of just pausing for a moment on, on the words in this verse. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. We get the idea of a victory, don't we? Uh, you're in some sort of a battle with something, and you win. Well, you are the conqueror. You have defeated. But, but what does it mean to say that you are more than a conqueror? And in what context are you more than a conqueror? You're more than a conqueror in all these things. Just work, at this, work with me at this, this language for a minute. You See, Paul could have said, in spite of these things, we're still conquerors. Yeah, that would be the kind of argument of the scale. Look, yeah, in spite of all these terrible bad stuff, there is a there. There are these good things that counterbalance them. That's the argument of the scales. That's there back in verse eighteen. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Yeah, you weigh them up, and the glory is weightier than the sufferings. So that would be look in spite of these tough things, we're conquerors. But actually he's not saying that there. He said it back in verse eighteen. It's true, but it's not what he's saying here. He's got something else to say. I suppose he could have said, Look, after all these bad things, we will still be conquerors. Because yeah, it's bad stuff now groaning, frustration now. That's the language of verses nineteen through the twenty five of the chapter. Yeah, there's all this sort of horrible groaning stuff now. But, one day, it's going to be great. After all these things, we'll end up as conquerors. He could have said that, and it's true. But that's not what he says either. Look carefully. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Right, right now, in the midst of them, there is a conquest going on. Right in the very midst of the trouble and the difficulty. You haven't got to wait till, till, till it's gone for your conquest. No, the conquest is right here in the middle of them. And, and then there's this phrase, this funny phrase, more than conquerors. What does it be to be more than a conqueror? I think that the point here is that the sovereign God so comprehensively controls the detail of our world, the detail of your life and my life, That even the difficulties that come at us, God turns to profit in his perfect plans. Isn't that the argument of verse 28? That famous verse that says that in all these things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now that's a really dangerous verse, isn't it? It's the sort of verse that, that glibly tossed around can do an awful lot of damage. But it's true, we've got to speak it carefully to somebody who's in the midst of trouble and difficulty. But it is true that in all these things, even in the worst of our difficulties, God is working for the good of those who love him. In other words, God doesn't simply eradicate the bad stuff. No, God does more than that. He turns the bad stuff into that which will actually work for us, for him, for his good purposes. It's, it's as if in the tug of war analogy, the stuff that looks as though it's pulling against us, because we are more than conquerors, God takes and turns and uses so that it pulls in his direction, in his good planning. It's an astonishing thing that's being said here. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And there again, you've got to notice the language really carefully. He doesn't say we're more than conquerors through Him who loves us. No, and he throws it into the past tense through Him who loved us. Of course, God does continue to love us in Christ. But here, He's using past tense because He wants to throw our focus on the cross, that moment of demonstration of His love. That's the the anchor point that you and I need to turn to to find our assurance of God's love. It's on the basis of the cross that we can be sure. That's what leads to the climax of the chapter where Paul writes, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hang around long enough here and you may find that I speak those words at your funeral. Of course, hang around long enough here, you may be the person who speaks them at my funeral. It matters, doesn't it, that these are true. I've lost count of the number of funerals where I've spoken these words. It matters that they are true, doesn't it? That in death, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's a series of contrasting pairs. Do you see that? Neither death nor life, nor anything that happens while we're alive, nor the way in which we die, that can't separate us. Neither angels nor demons, nothing in the spiritual realm, the good stuff, the bad stuff, anything in between, that can't separate us. Neither the present nor the future nor any power, in other words, everything in all of time, present all the way through to future, that can't separate us. Neither height nor depth, Not the stuff below me that I can't understand and the stuff above me that I can't understand. None of that can separate us. Nothing else in all of creation. He just sort of adds that sort of catch-all at the end. Do you catch that? Nothing else in all of creation. Look, in case you think I've left anything out, let me just add that phrase in. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you see what Paul has done in this chapter? Do you see what he's done in the, in the conclusion to this chapter? He's addressing both our heads and our hearts. He takes the justifying work of God and he shows us with careful logic why it is that we can be sure. And then he takes the the, the saving work of Christ on the cross and addresses our hearts with passionate rhetoric because he wants us to be sure. Now, we need both of those. So can I say that if you tend towards being a thinker, if you love the logic of the atonement, you love the logic of penal substitution and you love understanding it all, then then can I say, do you see that you need to feel the wonder of this salvation? And maybe as you go into this new academic year, your prayer might be to ask God to stir your heart. Ask him to thrill you that you have a saviour like Christ so that you feel it to the very core of your being. On the other hand, if you're a feelings kind of person, you love to love Christ, you love to love people, and you're more concerned to do that than to understand this or worry about lots of theology and complicated arguments. Do you see that God would have you think he'd have you fathom the the depths of his love by wrestling to understand what it is that he has done for you. We're vulnerable either way. You're vulnerable if all you do is think, but you don't let your heart feel. You're vulnerable if, if you just have warm fuzzies and you don't really think through what it is that God has done. God intends us to do both. So as we come to the end of the summer, come to the end of Romans chapter 8, can I ask how does this look to you? How convinced are you that devoting this coming year to his cause will mean a year well spent? How convinced are you that spending Sundays here with God's people will be time well spent? How convinced are you that energy given to his service will be energy well spent? How convinced are you that money given to his cause will be money well spent? How convinced? How convinced that Christ who loves you And says to you that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me pray for us. Our Lord God, you you desire us uh, to be sure of your great love for us. You don't want to leave us in doubt. You don't want to leave us uncertain of the way in which you have loved us, the future that you have assured us of. You don't want to leave us in any doubt about the Christ who now intercedes for us. Uh, Please would... Uh, our heads be persuaded Uh, would our hearts be thrilled Uh, and would uh, the year that lies ahead of us uh, be a year that uh, brings you honour and praise and glory as out of a certainty of all that you have done for us uh, we live uh, for your cause and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.